As I talk about grace from the book of Galatians, some of you are probably saying, I like this message of free grace. There are no obligations, no responsibilities, and no guilt trips. I can do as I please. My friends, you misunderstand grace if that is what you think. Free grace must not become cheap grace. The grace of Christ working in our lives produces good works. There are still many obligations in the Bible which God places on us as Christians. The important issue is why we do what we do. Our relationship with Christ should produce our service for Christ. Free grace is not cheap grace. Grace results in works, but works do not result in grace. What we do for him rises from what he has done for us and not the other way around. When our special needs daughter Katie was four years old, we decided to use a coupon for free photos at a photo studio. My wife had been very sick for some time, so I took Katie to get her picture taken. Katie was all dressed up with her hair primped properly for the photo shoot. I had settled her on the table for her picture when the photographer suddenly started moving her, her around and adjusting her. Katie became upset by the sudden movements by a strange person and refused to cooperate. She was not having her picture taken, and that was all there was to it. At first, I tried to calm her down. I tried to distract her to no avail. Then, like any resourceful parent, I tried bribery with lunch at the local fast food restaurant. Finally, in exasperation, I put on my best authoritative dad voice and told her to be a big girl and sit up there and have her picture taken. Nothing worked, so we left. We went down the elevator hand in hand in silence. As we were walking through the store, she obviously discerned my disappointment. Katie looked up at me and said, Daddy, are you disappointed? I said that I was. So she developed a very determined look on her face and said, Daddy, I will go back up there and take my picture for you after we go to lunch. What was she asking for? She was asking for assurance that the relationship was still intact. Lunch with Daddy was something special. She was asking for grace first, not a reward for something afterwards. She would do what I wanted in response to grace. We went to lunch, then we returned to the photographer and waited our turn in line again. This time, she went right in with her little jaw set hard as flint. She looked like a lamb being led to slaughter. The only thing she said was that she was not sitting on that table, but on a stool. 
Her picture shows a rather lopsided smile. It's not a very good picture, quite frankly. It's one of those forced smiles. But I treasure it because of this story. Grace is always a much more powerful and effective motivator than law. Grace first brings works second. The message of Galatians 2, 20 and 21 is very simple. I live by faith in Christ who lives in me. These classic verses summarize the dynamic of the Christian life. We died with Christ in his death. We live because he lives. The Christian life is a resurrection life. We serve him because of his grace to us. There are three little principles about navigating the Christian life in these two verses. First principle, I am dead but alive in Christ, Galatians 2.20. I am dead but alive in Christ. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul writes, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Painted high on the rocks above the main street in Skagway, Alaska, are some often photographed images. Legend has it that the clock on the rocks above that is set to 720 memorialized the time of Abraham Lincoln's death. However, 720 is the normal clockmaker setting used to display the symmetry of a clock and quite likely advertised a local store. The other two engravings on the rock, Kermsey's Curios and Moe's Frontier Bar, were historic businesses in Skagway dating back to the gold rush days. People flocked to these streets from all over the country, drawn by advertisers who promised that they would get rich quick with all the gold in the mountains. In reality, the merchants in the tiny boom town of Skagway were the ones who made the most money. Ego drove gold fever, but self-promotion made the money. Humans are all about self. Life, B.C., before Christ, is dead. My old, unregenerate, unsaved, self-centered self died with Christ on the cross. The I who died in verse 19 of Galatians 2 is the I who no longer lives in verse 20. The I who lives has been merged into Christ. The natural man died. The person who is driven by the human ego no longer lives. Living for self is the person I was B.C., before Christ. Self-identity and self-promotion focus on the almighty I. Ego drives life apart from Christ. Once I become a Christian, 
I no longer have a separate identity from Christ. My life is merged into his life. Life AC is Christ in me. We expect Paul to write, I no longer live, but I live in Christ. However, he's so caught up in the transformation of what it means to be a Christian that he writes, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The old me died. The new me is Christ. It's not that I now live in Christ, but that Christ lives in me. The present tense of the verb indicates that Christ lives in me in an ongoing, continuous way. He is always in me. This is what it means to, to have life after Christ. Paul is talking about our present life on earth, not our future life in heaven. Our merger with Christ is now, not later. There's no place that I can go and no activity that I can do that Christ is not in me as I do it. The Christian life is nothing less than the life of Christ operating in the Christian. Christ is resident within us. He is the controlling, operating power in our lives. You say, but Dave, what happens when I sin? Does that mean that Christ is the sinner? No. When you sin, it is because you have resurrected your dead self. Our biggest problem in the Christian life is that we keep resurrecting our dead selves. And because we resurrect our dead selves, we then resurrect the law to control those ugly, ego-driven selves. The law, in turn, only contributes to more Christian corpses walking around in our churches. Paul explains this concept more completely in Romans chapters 6 and 7. Listen to these words from Romans 6, verses 12 to 14. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace." We are not under law as a way of governing our lives. We are under grace as a way of governing our lives. We navigate the Christian life by grace, not law, because we are under the grace government, not the law government. It is not that sin ceases to be sin, or that holiness ceases to be holiness. It is that I stop governing my life by producing in me what Christ wants to produce in me. That is why Paul emphasized that Christ lives in me. God dethrones ego to enthrone Christ. This is the central transformation of the Christian life. All immorality is narcissistic. 
Ego drives every sin we commit. Moral behavior can, of course, be altruistic, but sadly, narcissism taints even our finest altruism. God dethrones our egos to transform our lives. Every moral failure, racism, abortion, sex outside of marriage, every moral failure is self-centered at its core. We will never change the social order by law. Christ must dethrone self, one self at a time, to change society. The first foundational principle for living the Christian life is that I must die. Self must be crucified. There's a story about a missionary from Liverpool, England, who sailed to Africa to serve the Lord as a missionary. He changed boats at the coast and headed into the fever-infested jungles. While he was changing boats, he met an old slave trader who said to him, If you go to that place, you will die. The missionary replied softly, I died before I ever left Liverpool. The first foundational principle is that I am dead but alive in Christ. The second foundational principle for the Christian life is that I work by faith in Christ, Galatians 2.20. I work by faith in Christ. Paul continues in verse 20 with the words, And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. The two phrases, in flesh and in faith, are parallel phrases in the structure. We live in flesh by living in faith. Flesh here refers to our mortal human lives. Both prepositions refer to the sphere in which we live, not the means by which we live. Just as we do not live our lives by means of the flesh, we live in the sphere of flesh, so it is not by faith the means, but in faith the sphere that we must live the Christian life. Faith is the atmosphere in which we live and breathe as Christians. Living in the atmosphere of faith in Christ is how we navigate our Christian lives. The Christian life involves total immersion in Christ, like a fish in the water. Our lives become autonomic, like breathing air as we live in the atmosphere of faith. In physics, we achieve equilibrium when the elements exist in perfect balance. So too in the Christian life, there is equilibrium in Christ. Like a marble at the bottom of a bowl, no matter how the bowl of life is turned, we are stable in the atmosphere of faith. In biology, there is homeostasis. The organism maintains a stable inner state despite outside changes. 
Like our bodily temperature regulates the body to remain stable, so faith in the Son of God regulates all of life so that we remain stable. Our awareness of Christ becomes so enveloping that we sense his presence in all we do and all we say. There is a tension, of course, in this verse, which we all feel. The tension is between works and faith. When Paul says, I live in flesh, he is saying that he's alive physically. What demonstrates that he is alive physically? How do we know he's alive physically? Well, he works. He does things. He functions. He produces actions and performs deeds. I live means that I do something, not that someone else does it for me. I am not waiting for a miracle to occur so that God does it for me. I do not say to the Lord, Okay, Lord, I'm going to lie in this bed on Sunday morning until you miraculously make my legs move and get me out of bed and force me to get dressed. And wonder of wonders, you drive my car to church in time for the morning worship service. Then amazingly, you take over my lips and my mind, and by your incredible powers you make my mouth move and make my vocal cords vibrate, and you start talking through me like I am in some sort of out-of-body experience. No, that's not what happens, of course. I choose to get out of bed. I choose to get dressed, even if I don't feel like it. I choose to drive the car to church. And I choose to, enter, uh, to attend the worship service. I choose to preach. And I work many hours to prepare a sermon in advance. I really do these things. But I do all of them in the atmosphere of faith. I believe that Christ lives in me and that whatever I do, he is actually doing in me. I believe that he can make me capable to do what he wants me to do. I trust him to reproduce his life in me. Some of you have struggled, as I have, and of course many, many others, with the relationship between James and Galatians in the New Testament. It's the tension between faith and works between obedience and grace. Well, my friends, never pit James against Paul. They are both part of Scripture, but they are each looking at life from different angles. James tells us in James 2.22, you see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. I think that a better translation would be faith is completed as a result of works. Works complete faith. Works solidify faith. They make faith real. Real faith produces works. But the works are produced in us by Christ as we trust him to help us, to enable us to do those works. I know this sounds like religious double talk, so let me try to boil it down to where we live. Theory is fine, but practice is better. There are a couple of ways that people have tried to live the Christian life. 
There are those who say, let go and let God. But Paul's not saying that in these verses. We can't just sit back and wait for God to move our feet, pay our bills, or make our decisions for us. Others say, God helps those who help themselves. This is a kind of pick-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps mentality to the Christian life. God is mostly on the sidelines cheering us on and lending a hand when things get tough. But Paul is not teaching us to will ourselves into holiness by the performance of our duties. Paul is teaching us that God enables us to do his will. God gives us the capacity to live for him. He places the power to do his will at our disposal. We have to use it, and we use it by faith. We believe that he gives us the power to do what he calls us to do, and that God will never ask us to do anything that he does not enable us to do. One of my favorite verses to hang on to is 2 Peter 1 verse 3, where Peter tells us that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. He's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Already done. Then a few verses later, Peter tells us that we have to apply all diligence. We have to work at it. We have to apply all diligence in our faith to supply the qualities of godliness that should characterize our lives. We do what we do because he does what he does. Faith is the dynamic for living the Christian life. But Paul doesn't stop there in Galatians 2.20. He goes on to talk about the motivation for our works. I am motivated to do good works because Christ loved me and gave himself for me. We do good works because of the love of Christ for us. This is not our love for Christ, which is an emotional roller coaster. It is Christ's love for us that motivates us to serve him. We live for him because of what he did for us. I want you to see that this process is highly personal. In the Greek text, there are no less than nine I's or me's in just these two verses. That tells me that salvation and spirituality are very personal matters. It is personal faith in the love of Christ that helps me personally live the Christ life. No one else can live it for me. No one else can believe it for me. Christ loves me personally, and he died for me personally. He loves you and died for you personally, too. Until you and I come to the realization of a personal love relationship with Jesus Christ by faith, we will never understand the joy of the Christian life. It's not just that we must learn that lesson for our initial conversion. We must also learn that lesson for our spiritual growth. We will never grow as Christians until we personally trust Christ 
for his personal and enabling love in our lives. When we learn that lesson, then, then we are freed by his grace to live as he wants us to live and like it. How does all this relate to our daily lives? Well, it relates positively in that whatever I accomplish in the Christian life, it is by faith that Christ can do it through me. Christ lives in me as I eat, drink, work, and play. He transforms our lives in the most elemental ways. He is there when I watch sports or movies. He enters the home with me. He, enter, he interacts with co-workers through me. Christ is involved as I debate politics or argue about theology. Because Christ lives in me, even the most basic facets of life are filled with his transforming presence. My life on earth is life in faith. I don't stop working. But I must make sure that what I am doing, I am doing by faith in his power to do it. So he gets all the glory when I do anything right. This faith-work dynamic also relates negatively. What happens when I do something wrong? Whenever I fail, forgiveness comes by faith as well. I believe that he can cleanse me of all unrighteousness when I confess my sin to him, 1 John 1, 9. I have to take that on faith. There is no other way to experience forgiveness. The God who loves me and gives himself for me is not about to disown me any more than I am about to disown my daughter any time she disappoints me. To be free from your guilt, you must believe that he forgives you, not because of your worthiness, but because of his love. So, the first principle for navigating the Christian life is that I am dead, but alive in Christ. The second principle is I work by faith in Christ. And the third principle for navigating the Christian life, is I guard the grace of Christ, verse 21. I guard the grace of Christ. I do not nullify the grace of God, Paul writes, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. The word translated nullify or frustrate the grace of God is a word that meant to set aside a treaty, or to break your word to someone. In the Old Testament, it was used of profaning the holy things of God. The word was used in the first century of canceling a debt by paying it off. Once the debt is paid off, you have nullified the debt you owe. The conduct of Peter is the context of Paul's statement here. God saved Peter by grace alone, but Peter slipped into law-keeping for his sanctification. He implied that the Gentiles had to do the same by following the Jewish dietary regulations to maintain right standing with God. 
And Paul argues that Peter nullified or rendered inoperative God's grace through his actions. Peter rejected the sufficiency of Christ's death by adding conditions to the Christian life. Legalism is a practical rejection of grace and an annulling of the cross as foundational for Christian living. Suppose that I give my daughter $10,000 in her time of great need. I insist that it is a gift given out of my deep love for her, and she has no obligation to repay me. It's my gift. She says that she is indebted to me and will work to pay me back. Eventually, she cancels the debt by paying me back every dime that I gave to her as a gift. What has she done? She has set aside, rejected, and nullified my gift. It's no longer a gift. It was a loan, then, because she paid it back. When we treat a gift, grace, as a debt, we render the gift invalid. It's no longer a gift. It's no longer grace. This is what we do when we try to pay God back for his grace freely given to us on the cross. Too many Christians treat the Christian life as a debt to be paid to God for the grace he gave to us. We come to God by faith in his grace, but soon turn the Christian life into matters of performance, duty, and obligation. We nullify his grace when the motive for our service is to pay back our debt to him for his gift. We turn his grace into a loan, not a gift. The Christian life is by grace just as much as conversion is by grace. Sanctification is just as much a product of grace as justification. So we must guard grace with our lives. We must fight for it in our churches and not allow others to turn God's grace into religious moralism. The church will always have a tendency to bring back law because laws work. Laws simplify our lives. Laws help us decide who is good and who is bad so that we can eliminate the one and keep the other. Laws set up litmus tests based on selective holiness so that we don't have to wrestle with the real spiritual issues in our lives as we label others as unspiritual. Moralism works. We can increase our attendance in church by guilt, and we can look down our long sanctified noses at those who don't measure up to our spirituality. Benjamin Franklin, the classic moralist, set out to, in life to achieve moral perfection through his little book of 13 virtues. For each virtue, he lined out seven columns, one for each day of the week. He would self-evaluate these virtues daily as he sought to be a better man. But at the age of 79, he had to admit that he had failed. The moralist thinks that you must live for law to live for God. Paul wrote that we must die to law to live for God. 
It is tempting to fall into the moralist's trap, my friends. Peter slid into that trap without even thinking, and Paul had to call him out on it. People in our churches today sometimes set up holiness markers that others are expected to live up to, and we too must call them out on that when it happens. We must always guard the grace of Christ because others, and even ourselves sometimes, will fall into law as a means of spirituality. When we slide into legalism, we negate grace. When we negate grace, then Christ died needlessly. We insult Christ every time we try to live the Christian life by law. One of our biggest problems is that we don't really believe that Christ can reproduce himself in us. So we resurrect the law in an attempt to prove to God that we are worthy of his grace. When we impose those standards on others through guilt, we forget that the Christian life is a one-way street. Grace produces works, but works do not produce grace. You cannot go the wrong way on that one-way street and expect to become spiritual. You will end up an emotional and spiritual wreck if you try. Whenever we resurrect the law, we are attempting to go the wrong way on a one-way street. Whenever we turn Christianity into a set of rules and regulations, we are trying to go the wrong way on that one-way street. The lesson of these verses is I live by faith in Christ who lives in me. The story is told of a student who asked the president of his college whether he could take a shorter course than the one that was required to graduate. The president looked at him and said, I suppose you could do that, but it all depends on what you want to be when you are done. When God wants to make an oak, he takes 100 years, but when God wants to make a squash, he takes six months. We are all looking for shortcuts to spiritual maturity, and the law is one of those shortcuts. God's not interested in our shortcuts. He is building us for eternity. We have far too many squashes in our churches and far too few saplings who are patiently growing into mighty oaks for God's glory. Don't cut down the spindly little oak trees to make room for a squash garden. We must be patient to allow God to produce his perfection in us.